Let me welcome you to Uplift tonight. And remember, we are recording all these messages and we're putting them on our podcast. So if anyone's listening on our podcast, we're glad that you are here. We are in a series called Questioning Jesus, where we are examining some of the questions that were asked of Jesus and specifically some of the questions that he answered. And for this session, we're going to start by talking about going viral, going viral. Christopher Tompkins, he's a co-founder and a CEO of a full service digital marketing agency. He's also a contributor to Forbes magazine, has often said that clients come to him and they solicit his services with the only goal of going viral, to which he will often respond, go viral with what? According to him, and he's got some great advice here, going viral isn't just a flippant thing that happens. It's a very planned experience that happens around a very specific set of circumstances. And going viral doesn't necessarily happen around companies and brands, but it does happen around content, posts, videos, images. It's content that goes viral content with a purpose. It's built around marketing campaigns or campaigns during specific times centered around events. This is what it means to go viral. But obviously, this is the sort of topic that's really only relevant in the digital age, but it's not necessarily confined to the digital age because going viral has been around a long time and it's looked differently and different times. And in the times of the first century, the time of the New Testament, the time of Jesus's ministry, going viral was an option for only one person. And that was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And there was only one way that he could go viral. And it was with his money. It was with his coin. And you know what his coin was called? called a denarius. You've heard of that in the New Testament. Most often that word pops up in parables where money is involved. The denarius, let me tell you a little bit about this coin. The denarius was about four grams of pure silver and it equaled one day's wage for a common laborer in the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus's ministry. That's a long sentence, but I had to get it all in. In other words, it was a pretty stable piece of currency. Each emperor of Rome issued his own denarius. And that denarius, every denarius that he issued while he was the emperor was considered his personal property. It belonged to him. Augustus, the first Caesar and emperor of Rome, issued hundreds of versions of his own coin. They all had various inscriptions and they were all used for various purposes. But the emperor during the time of Jesus's ministry was a guy named Tiberius. And Tiberius issued only three, with one of those more common than the other two. They were everywhere. And that more common one was the one that was used throughout the empire. In fact, it was the one that was most commonly referred to in the New Testament. Tiberius used his denarius to pay his soldiers, his officials, those in his court, and get this, he made it illegal to carry his denarius into a public bathhouse or brothel. Couldn't do it. But this coin, 
his coin, the emperor's coin, it wasn't just Roman currency. It was the emperor's personal instrument of propaganda. It was used to promote his agenda and his accomplishments. Its chief aim wasn't necessarily to provide economic security, but rather to indoctrinate people, to sway them, to convince them, to manipulate them. It was its own content in a very different sort of social media. It was shared every day, constantly going viral with millions of hits every hour, millions of coins passing through millions of hands. And because of this, because of its prevalence, it was also, it was also the symbol of subjugation. It was the tangible symbol that reminded every Roman citizen and slave and conquered people that they were not the makers of their own destinies. They were controlled, regardless of how wealthy they became, because, and this is critical, because they had to use the emperor's coin, his own viral content, to pay their taxes. Let's zoom in a little bit from the Roman Empire at large to Judea for just a moment, and in particular, let's zoom into a particular episode in Judea that was not a parable, but it was an event in Jesus's life that involved the denarius, the emperor's coin. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and we're going to read from verse 20 through 26. So Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. Keeping a close close watch on him, on Jesus, they, and by the way, we know who they are. They are the scribes and the chief priests. We're told this, actually, if you have your Bibles open, you can see this. We're told that this is who they were one verse earlier. So they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. Verse 21, so the spies questioned him. This is all so secretive. Teacher, we know that you speak and you teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Verse 22, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Man, that is a left hook. Verse 23, Jesus saw through their duplicity and he said to them, show me, and here it is, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. And they replied, Caesar's. Verse 25, he said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Verse 26, they were unable to trap him in what he said there in public and astonished by his answer, they became silent. This episode, this episode is of maximum importance in the ministry and life of Jesus. You can find this episode almost verbatim, not only just here in Luke, but also in the gospels of Matthew and Mark. In fact, it's also included in two other pieces of writing during the same time. And its prevalence indicates the importance of both the question and Jesus's answer. 
It's here in this episode that we find Jesus' critics, by the way, the most powerful people in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes, as critics, we find them here reduced to cloak and dagger techniques. They've dispatched spies lurking in the shadows, and they did this to ask about the emperor's coin. Now, I know they don't use those words. It's not written there, but they don't have to because remember, we said this, the only way to pay taxes to the Roman Empire, to pay taxes to Caesar, is with his own coin. In other words, there's something about this coin, or, or better said, there's actually something more going on here. Let's talk a little bit more about this coin. The denarius was probably not a common coin used in Judea. Soldiers would have used it. Roman officials would have used it. And get this, because they have it, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, would have used it. And this is why, because it protected them and it protected their power. In fact, their power was actually based upon their ability to collect this annual tax. But if you used it, it absolutely betrayed your allegiance. This coin was the nexus of struggle between the ruling class in Judea and the poor. In fact, Judea had seen its fair share of revolts over the taxation against people in Judea and Palestine over this very coin. The Romans in 6 AD, this is several years before the episode that we've read, in 6 AD they levied a tax against Judea and Palestine. It was so unpopular and burdensome that they ended up reducing the amount that had to be paid a few years later. Undoubtedly, because of the antagonistic response among those who were forced to pay. And one man in particular, one firebrand, Judas of Galilee, we've actually mentioned him in a previous session here, actually used his power and his self-proclaimed title as deliverer to revolt and destroy Roman power because of the taxing and the taxation. And he did all this. He was eventually killed before it. Before it. We, know, we also know his position about this tax According to Josephus, he believed, Judas of Galilee believed that taxation was, get this, just an introduction to slavery. In other words, those who carried this coin were, in the eyes of many poor Jewish families, they were traitors. So it's, it's pretty important to notice who has in this story the emperor's coin and who doesn't. The Sanhedrin has it. Jesus doesn't. And the fact that Jesus' questioners produce the coin so quickly validates what we already know. They use it, and since they have it, they use it often. But there's something else pretty noticeable about this coin and its appearance right here. These members of the Jewish ruling class asked about the coin and they presented this coin to Jesus in Jerusalem, get this, in the temple courts. That's where this episode happened. Here's how we know this. Just a chapter before in Luke chapter 19, verse 26, this is when Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters with his entourage and he's hailed as the king 
right? He's riding in on a donkey. It's a big scene and a big story. A few verses later in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, we learn that Jesus went in Jerusalem. After he got there, he went to the temple courts every day to teach. And then later in chapter 20, verse 1, we discover that Jesus is teaching the gospel in the temple courts every day. So in other words, it's in the temple courts where Jesus is questioned. In the same place where we find the emperor's coin, again, going viral in the easternmost part of the Roman Empire. Don't underestimate what's happening here. The scribes and the chief priests, the most righteous people in all of Judaism, brought a blasphemous item into the sacred space of the temple, thus breaking the own law that they had vowed to protect. The law, by the way, which was the subject of their question. The actual image and inscription on the emperor's coin is how we know that this was blasphemous and unlawful. The emperor, the Caesar, remember his name is Tiberius, he imprinted his profile on one side of the coin. His image is crowned with laurels of divinity and victory. He looks like an emperor, even if he doesn't look like Tiberius. And around Tiberius, on the edge of the coin, are these words imprinted on every denarius in the entire Roman Empire. This is what it says. Tiberius, Caesar, worshipful son of the god Augustus. He's the self-proclaimed son of God. His coin says so. It's his viral content. It's his mobile piece of propaganda. But on the other side of the coin, the other side of the coin bears the image of the Roman goddess of peace known as Pax. And around her, along the edge of the coin, are these words, Pontifex Maximus, which when translated into English, means high priest. So this one coin, the emperor's viral content, asserts across the entire empire the emperor's proclamation that he, Tiberius, is a god and worthy of the worship of all people. He's not only the son of a God, a so-called God, but he's also the high priest. This man, this emperor Tiberius, known as a pedophile, as a sexual deviant, as a murderer, as an emperor who enslaved millions of people in his empire, called himself the son of God and a high priest. And the Jewish leaders carried his coin. What we have right here, you know, you can see it. It's a showdown between the rightful son of God and high priest and a very evil emperor. This coin was actually the tax itself. We've already talked about that. There wasn't some complex way to report income and filed taxes, the procedure was very simple. Every male 
in the Roman Empire had to pay one denarius per year to Rome, even if there were other taxes that were levied where they lived. So one day's wage per year paid to Rome. Now that sounds pretty insignificant. You would probably love to have that tax rate, but it was incredibly symbolic since most people in the Roman Empire lived in what you and I would call abject poverty. The loss of even one day's wage could be catastrophic to a family. But it was also a reminder, this annual tax, it was also a reminder to those in Judea that they were not autonomous. They were under the control of the emperor and his empire. They were not free people. And if anyone failed to pay this tax, and there were a few, he would be tried for sedition and treason, and if found guilty, you know what his punishment was? It was crucifixion. This little coin in Luke chapter 20 is not trivial, nor is the question asked of Jesus, nor is his answer. Here's what happens. If Jesus says that it's lawful to pay this tax, he would be seen as a supporter of Rome and this emperor. He would also be seen as a traitor of Judea. He would infuriate and alienate the very people who had just proclaimed him as king. But if he says that paying the tax is unlawful, he could be punished, convicted, tried as a political criminal and traitor. It's a trap, right? Either answer would put a target on his back, and he knew it. I love what Luke says. He saw through their duplicity. So the first thing he does is he offers a counter question. Show me a denarius whose image, and pay attention to this, whose image and inscription are on it. His counter question includes a couple of words that were central, pretty central and significant in Judaism. The first one is the word image. You know this one. In fact, the first commandment of the Ten Commandments prohibits the worship of anyone or anything but God, and it forbids crafting an image of a false God to worship. So by using the word image, Jesus reminded his questioners of this commandment. An image of God or an image of any false God is itself unlawful. And the second word here in his counter question is the word inscription. The Shema, you know this, it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It's the command to love God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. Did you know that the Shema only makes one allowance for things to be inscribed? The only things that can be inscribed are the very laws of God. And you could write them on parchment or on doorposts or on the city gate. So Jesus, by using these two words, he's not being subtle here. He's not being subtle with his counter question. He used words that they knew. They were, after all, the rulers of the Jewish religion and the Jewish people. So what was probably a sucker punch toward Jesus, he punched right back. But then we get to his answer, probably one of his most famous statements in, in the entire Gospels. Give back 
to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's an amazing statement. You know what Jesus is saying here is this, you know what, if, if you Jewish leaders, are you, if you're really as holy as you claim you are, as the chief interpreters of the law, the ones who uphold and are the gatekeepers of all that's holy and righteousness, if you're so pure, then why don't you just give the coin back? Jesus is answer invites those who are listening then and now to choose allegiances because the ways of Caesar and the ways of God, they're mutually exclusive. Now, listen carefully. Listen carefully. Jesus does not advocate for the separation of church and state here, nor does he say that we should forego paying our taxes to our government. But he does say something about compromises. I want you to listen to the words of New Testament scholar Gunther Bornkum regarding Jesus's answer. He writes, this is not meant, Jesus's statement, this is not meant as a timeless general proposition, but is to be considered, like all of Jesus's teaching, in light of the coming kingdom of God, which is already present in Jesus' words and deeds and has begun to realize itself. Through this interpretation of render unto God all the things that are God's, the other part receives the meaning of a temporary, temporary interim obligation soon to end. For the reign of Caesar passes, but God's reign comes and does not pass away. Jesus' Jesus's answer invites us. Actually, it's, it's got to be stronger than that. It challenges us. It calls us to avoid compromises that make it easy for us to live in, in what Paul called in Galatians this present evil age. It calls us to avoid compromises that make it easy for us to live here without ever questioning this present evil age, without ever challenging it. We all hold our own emperor's coin. It's time for us to call it what it is and to trust God when we let it go. Let's pray together, everybody. Lord, as we close here, we just ask for the power to not accept anything that compromises your authority over our life. It seems that in all of these questions and in all of these stories, you are calling us to something deeper, something more profound, something that requires what we perceive as a tremendous amount of faith, but what you call only the faith of a mustard seed. Lord, we hear this teaching, we read these stories, and we have to confess that we believe, but we are praying for our unbelief. We need help with that. We trust you in all things. Lord, give us the power again to walk away from all the things that are evil. In fact, even if it hints of it, we trust you and follow you alone. Thank you for your teaching in the word of God. And we pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.